This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Yours truly is proud to report that he's returned from a vacation in the Balkans, a place I've always wanted to visit, and will, in due time, do what I can to talk a bit about the experience. In a future installment of this program, I will bring my traveling companions on to rehash some of the things we witnessed and observations we made and history we learned, etc. But uh, today, I think I'll just do a little bit of a um, thumbnail sketch. Perhaps the biggest piece of news I have related to this travel was that by coincidence, I ran into the great travel writer and travel promoter, Rick Steves, when I was in Bulgaria. I had a brief conversation with Mr. Steves, and he has agreed to come on a future installment of the show. And you can bet we're looking forward to that. And to those of you who have written in saying, what's the deal? You haven't aired any original shows since whatever. Um, well, we appreciate your interest. And note that our promise to continue to bring you original material is being in part fulfilled by today's show. Radio Parallax, I think, celebrates its 14th birthday, I think, this week or the next week, something like that. And let's just note that there's, there's more where that came from. When you take a break, uh, such as we've done here uh, of, of the last four weeks, I guess, hiatus from original programming, a lot of stuff has built up. And so uh, the usual problem we have on a weekly basis of what to talk about is just that much more exacerbated. But, of course, we have that much more to draw from. So let's do what we can. And let's start out, I think, uh, with the way we like to start out most programs, which is on this date in history. Our date today is June 2nd. So let us note that it was on June 2nd in the year 455 that Rome was sacked. The Vandals entered the city and plundered it for two weeks. And yes, their desecrations did lead directly to the term vandalism. Which is so uncomplimentary, you wonder if the Vandals, you know, wouldn't have given that one a second thought before they sacked the city back in 455. It was on June 2nd of the year 1098 during the First Crusade that the first siege of Antioch ended with Crusader forces taking the city. By the time this correspondent got there, 901 years later, it had been retaken by the Muslims. On June 2nd in the year 1886, U.S. President Grover Cleveland married Frances Folsom in the White House, thus becoming the only president to wed in the executive mansion. Cleveland also has another distinction. He is both our 22nd and 24th president. And as pointed out previously on Radio Parallax... The child born to Grover Cleveland and Francis Folsom, baby Ruth Cleveland, was in fact not the inspiration for the baby Ruth candy bar. This admittedly delicious confection was hitched to the star of baseball great Babe Ruth. But the phony baloney story cooked up by the Curtis Candy Company to deny this fact apparently gained enough traction to still be heard today. You know, that's why Radio Parallax is here, to try and unveil such skullduggery. Speaking of presidents, on June 2nd of 1924, Calvin Coolidge signed the Indian Citizenship Act into law, granting 
U.S. citizenship to all Native Americans born within the territorial limits of the U.S. And finally, it was on June 2nd in 1953 that Queen Elizabeth II was coronated, was crowned Queen of the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and her other realms and territories, and Head of the Commonwealth. This is reported to be the first major international event to be televised. And Queen Elizabeth is now 90 and still going strong. Sometime last year she equipped sometime last year she eclipsed Queen Victoria as the longest reigning British monarch and for all I know she might be one of the longest reigning monarchs of any nation. All right. Let's move right along. You know, it really does feel good to be back in front of the microphone. Our quote of the day comes from the biologist Thomas Huxley, who once said, Try to learn something about everything, and everything about something. Which we think is pretty good advice. Our quote of the day comes from the writers for Jimmy Kimmel, who said, You know, I've been flying a lot lately, and I've had so many pat-downs this week. One of the TSA guys told me to get checked because I had a lump. And our joke of the day comes from his late-night rival, Conan O'Brien, who said recently a new government report reveals that Hillary Clinton ignored the State Department rules about cybersecurity. The report states that Hillary's reckless arrogance and defiance could get her the Republican presidential nomination. Our anecdote of the week is as follows. Apparently, a convicted burglar in Indiana is suing the homeowner who shot him after he tried to break into a garage. Now, it's true that Daniel Bailey confessed to the crime and served a one-year sentence, but now he wants David McLaughlin, who shot him as he fled the scene of the crime, to pay $100,000 for his medical bills and damaged shoulder. It hurts every day, Bailey said. I'm very lucky I'm alive. And for our good news item of the week, we're going to, I think, point out this one. The fact that there actually is an alternative to the Republican and the Democrat come November. And uh, one possibility would be the Libertarian Party. Seems pretty clear that uh, the Libertarians are going to nominate former two-term New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson as their standard bearer. And they're also going to name another former Republican Governor, Bill Weld of Massachusetts, as his running mate. They will likely be in the ballot in all 50 states. Johnson is already garnering 10% of the vote in a Fox News poll. And some have noted that, um, well, it's just possible this year the Libertarian Party may well shatter its previous record of 1.1% of the vote. Of course, I have to chuckle over the comments made about the Libertarian prospects by David Boaz in the DailyBeast.com. He noted that finally a ticket uh, had arisen that sane Republicans can get behind, noting that Johnson and Weld were both capable executives who were elected and re-elected in Democratic states. Here's the part I like Boaz added. Well, granted, most conservatives don't share their libertarian enthusiasm for legalizing marijuana, allowing gays to marry, and avoiding foreign conflicts. Because, shoot, we all know what a great idea of foreign conflicts are. But anyway, let's do stats. Uh, Let's do plural when I say stats, because there's just quite a few that have caught my eye, and I just think we ought to run through a few of these. Starting with, and by the way, we have the Week magazine to thank for these, and a lot of what has proceeded, and some of what's going to follow. But the magazine noted 
in repeating the news from the Financial Times, that in 1992, 98 U.S. companies had a AAA credit rating from the Standard & Poor's. That's the highest rating possible. Today, just two companies are deemed AAA, Johnson & Johnson and Microsoft. It's due to the fact that more companies are taking on a higher level of debt to fund acquisitions and shareholder buybacks. Of course, if you saw the big short, you saw what AAA ratings meant when it came to bond sales pretty recently. This is not a day to go over that again. All right, second stat. I like this one. Apparently, 2% of the claims Donald Trump has made during his presidential campaign have been true, according to the fact-check organization PolitiFact.com. Now, 6% were evaluated as mostly true. 15% were half true. Another 15% were mostly false. 43% were false. And 18% were deemed pants-on-fire lies. And yes, if you're keeping score, his 76% false rating far exceeds that of all other candidates who ran for president. Here's another stat I find pretty interesting. With all the brouhaha over the supposed outrage over the name of the Washington Redskins, someone finally got around to polling uh, Native Americans to see how they felt about it. On Radio Parallax, I've taken pains to note that in my experience working with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, where I worked as a physician down in New Mexico, that the people down there were not at all outraged by this. So I'm not surprised to find out when someone got around to actually polling them, it turned out that a whopping 90% of Native Americans said they were not offended by the term redskin. So there you go. Maybe some social activists out there can pick more worthy topics. That's just my opinion. Right, here's one I love that I think we hit on before in the show some weeks back. Let's hit it again. According to the New York Times, the 25 highest paid hedge fund managers took home a combined $13 billion in income last year. That's according to Institutional Investors Alpha magazine. That's despite a losing year for hedge, the hedge fund industry as a whole. He's writing about this, uh, this fiasco. The Economist noted that uh, these elite investment firms, known as hedge funds, justify their handsome fees to their managers by claiming to employ the cleverest people in the world who are capable of spotting investment opportunities that other managers miss. In reality, most hedge funds perform no better than the market overall and sometimes far worse. In the first quarter of this year, the average fund lost 0.8% after fees. That's following a 1.1% loss for last year. What a scam. I'll have more to say about financial shenanigans before the hour is up. Here's a stat to blow your hair back. Apparently the biggest campaign spender of 2016 is Democrat Bernie Sanders. Bernie's gone through $166 million, which is at least a million dollars more than rival Hillary Clinton. Sanders has far outspent Clinton on TV, radio, and web ads, with $91 million to her $62 million. Now, I think Sanders has done that with actual, you know, grassroots money, not, not corporate contributions. But still, that's an interesting little, little stat, isn't it? All right, let's move on to the good, the bad, and the ugly. Of the week, it was a good week a few weeks back for some heads up play out on the links. 
with the news that PGA golfer Zach Blair, frustrated that he missed a birdie putt on the fifth hole at the Wells Fargo Championship, hit himself on the head with his putter. This slightly bent the shaft and resulted in an automatic disqualification on the next hole for using a, quote, non-conforming, unquote, club. What is wrong with golf? And it was probably a bad week a few weeks back for fighting fire with fire with the news that former Pennsylvania Governor Ed Rendell, who's a, who's a big Hillary Clinton supporter, said Donald Trump's comments about women will backfire because, quote, there are probably more ugly women in America than attractive women, unquote. Hmm. Well, we're not sure how grateful Hillary is for Ed Rendell's support right now. And it was a kind of ugly week two weeks back for payback with the news, according to Forbes magazine, that billionaire PayPal founder Peter Thiel has been secretly footing the legal bills for Hulk Hogan's successful defamation suit against Gawker.com after the snarky gossip site outed Thiel as, quote, totally gay, unquote, in 2007. He called its staff terrorists. And it was both a bad and ugly week this last week for Bill Cosby with the news that a Pennsylvania judge has ordered Cosby to stand trial on sexual assault charges dating to 2004 in a case that could see the disgraced comedian serve up to 30 years in prison if convicted. Nearly 60 women now have accused Cosby, age 78, of sexual misconduct. The statute of limitations has passed on the vast majority of those accusations, but a case involving former Temple University women's basketball coach Andrea Costand, who claims Cosby drugged her with two pills before assaulting her at his Philadelphia home 12 years ago, was reopened in December after a previous deposition given by Cosby was unsealed. In parts of that deposition, Cosby admits to having seven prescriptions for sedatives, to giving Constand three pills without asking for a verbal consent, and to having sex with women as young as 17. No word whether Ed Rendell is offered to help. All right, let's see if we can't blow through a few quickie news items before having some more lengthy discussions of issues, including travel. Apparently, a court in Italy has ruled that stealing food to assuage hunger is not a crime. Evidently, the highest court in Italy ruled that Roman Ostriakov, a homeless Ukrainian immigrant who pocketed some $5 worth of cheese and sausage in a Genoa supermarket in 2011 and was last year sentenced to six months in prison and a $115 fine, well, the Supreme Court of Cassation, which I guess is what they call the highest court of the land in Italy, said that uh, his case, well, they likened it to that of Jean Valjean, the hero of Victor Hugo's Le Miserable, noting that he acted in the face of an immediate and essential need for nourishment, so his action was not a crime. In a civilized country, the court said, not even the worst of men should starve. Well, yes, but I don't know. Couldn't they have had a a better ruling than that one? I mean, what if some hooligan returning home from a you know, some bar hopping decides, man, I'm starving. I just got to have that donut. And here's a potential deal with the devil. Apparently, Goldman Sachs has long been accused of favoring the wealthy and itself above all other entities in the universe, uh, is now reaching out to Main Street. Uh, writing in CNBC.com, Jessica Dickler has noted that you'll no longer need to be a high roller to bank with Goldman Sachs. They're launching an online-only bank for the masses with no transaction fees and no minimum de- deposits. 
Their new GS Bank also offers a rather attractive savings account rate of 1.05% annual yield. That compares with the current nationwide average of 0.08%. This is great, though. Now, you and me could be part of this vast criminal enterprise known as Goldman Sachs. And from the general idiocy file, we have this. Apparently, tennis star Serena Williams made herself ill recently by sampling her Yorkshire Terrier's luxury pet food. This happened just hours before she was due to play in the Italian Open. Now, the story is the tennis star was staying at a posh Rome hotel when she ordered a rice and salmon dish for her beloved Yorkshire Terrier, Chip. This came from a special room service menu for dogs. And yes, believe it or not, when the $17 meal arrived, (laughs) Williams said, I was like, that looks so good. So yes, she sampled a spoonful. She soon felt sick and had to run to the bathroom. I thought I was going to pass out, Williams said. But uh, she did, in fact, recover in time to go on to win the tournament. Mr. McMillan opines that her shot selection has always been better than her food selection. All right, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about travel. But before talking about traveling per se, I'd like to note that when I'm on the road, and I think a lot of you, too, dear listener, when, when you're on the road, like to catch up on their reading... I took Michael Lewis's book with me, uh, which I was interested in after reading The Big Short. This was his first effort, Liar's Poker. It's a hell of a good read, and I want to talk about it at some length, but I don't think I should try and do so today. Except that the book confirmed for me some of my worst notions about how crazy things are on Wall Street. Especially how these high-flying pirates um, really get away with so much. Lewis points out, among other insights, and when he first went to work for Lehman Brothers, it was expected, it was expected that as you went along and sold bonds to various clients, you would wreck several of them. It was a given that you were going to unload bad investments on them that would implode companies. And it would be pointed out to employees who kind of felt bad about some of this that, hey, look... You work for Lehman Brothers, not them. I also had a chance to read something I've been meaning to read for a while. I didn't realize how long a while. But I remember that when it came out, the book Our Crowd got great reviews and actually told a story about how Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs and a lot of other important Wall Street firms got started back in the 1800s. The term Our Crowd, the title of the book, refers to the German-Jewish immigrants who came from mostly Germany to America to find incredible success in what was to them the land of opportunity. One thing that struck me about that book, as, as does the contemporary writing of people like Matt Taibbi and Michael Lewis, was that when things go south and these avaricious heads of various corporations manage to damage or wreck the U.S. economy, when the government gets around to investigating, well, you know, slaps on the wrist are delivered, if that. So apparently over the last century and a half, uh, some things just haven't changed much. And also when it came to slaps on the wrist, I was reminded of the fact that uh, the recent investigation of shenanigans in Wall Street and the collapse of the U.S. economy in 2008 by, you know, irresponsible weasels, got investigated by Phil Angelides. 
better known in the greater Sacramento Davis area as the errand boy for Angelo Sakopoulos, who is, in fact, one of the largest donors in the nation to the Democratic Party. I wasn't too surprised to see lurking right behind Bill Clinton on, on the, uh, the footage of his visit to Jerry Brown a couple days back was Angelides. And I had to reflect on the fact that uh, his uh, misguided efforts to continue urban sprawl into the center of Sacramento, uh, currently being evidenced by the McVillage project going up near Cal Expo, well, uh, there was just no chance that the neighborhood was going to stop that project. Sakopoulos and Angelides just have too many friends in high places. I noted, too, that while I was gone, campaign literature piled up and piled up at the homestead. When I came back, my kitchen table was full of, uh, of well, mostly junk mail. And included among that junk mail were political flyers. In Sacramento, the mayoral race is heating up between Angelique Ashby and Daryl Steinberg. I thought Steinberg was probably a lock on the mayoral race, but it turns out somebody is uh, backing Ashby with a lot of dough because she's put out a lot of expensive campaign mailers. Of course, we know for the fact that Steinberg's got plenty of money. The Sacramento Bee revealed yesterday that Steinberg is serving as a consultant for the Los Angeles Metropolitan Water District. Those good people that are buying up lands down the Delta supposedly to restore the habitat. And dear listener, if you believe that is their intention, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com because we need to do some land deals, you, you and me. And if there's a bridge somewhere you're interested in buying, let's talk about that as well. Of course, the Metropolitan Water District is among the big, what are called water contractors, that uh, would like nothing better than to see Jerry Brown's twin tunnels be sucked, be stuck into the Delta to suck yet more water out. After all, if you've got the water, you can keep the development going until, well, until we just run out of water. Then the whole house of cards is going to collapse. You know, it really, it really reinforced to me what an arid climate we really do live in by, by visiting Europe. I mean, parts of the Balkans have a climate very similar to ours, but it is just a little bit cooler and a little bit wetter. In fact, a lot wetter. Driving across rolling fields of wheat, or maybe it was barley, I'm not sure which, but various grain fields in Bulgaria was struck by the fact that, uh, you know, there's no irrigation going on. They're dependent upon what falls from the sky. Quite a different uh, kettle of fish than what goes on here in California. Agriculture is utterly dependent upon imported water for irrigation. And while traveling, I had a chance to read a pretty interesting article about this very topic that was in the current edition of Mother Jones. I recommend it to you very highly, my dear listener. The title of the article is Some Kind of Wonderful, and it's by Josh Harkinson. The subtitle is, Linda and Stuart Resnick built their billion-dollar feel-good empire on nuts, slick marketing, and a staggering amount of California's water. My favorite single part of the article is a little chart included on uh, about the third page, titled, The Thirstiest Californians. It lists the estimated annual water use in millions of cubic meters under various categories. The first one was, All the Pools in Los Angeles. That appears to use up about maybe 3 million cubic meters. 
uh, this this compares to the pomegranate crop of the resnicks coming in at about 45 million cubic meters. As for the annual water use of all San Francisco homes, that came in at about 60 million cubic meters. This, this compares to the Resnick's California citrus crop of about mm, 100 million cubic meters. And then I mentioned their pistachio crop at about 160 million cubic meters. And their almonds, which are darn near 200 million cubic meters. Um, if you add up all of the water use of all Los Angeles homes, that's still mm, something like 50 million cubic meters short of what the Resnick's California crops alone require. Keep in mind, this is just one company who, who's, who uses more water than all of the homes in Los Angeles. And here's a passage from the account I think I should read. It notes that historically farmers pumped out just enough groundwater to survive, but in the middle of California's now five-year drought, nut growers like the Resnicks have also used it to expand. Over the last decade, California's almond acreage has increased by 47%, and its pistachio acreage has doubled, fueled in the latter case by the Resnick's advertising genius. Pistachios are now among the top 10 best-selling salty snack items in the United States, and the Resnick's Lost Hills Pistachio Factory is the world's largest. If you think there's something wrong with this arrangement, well, we think you're right. And we intend to have more to say about this article in particular and the subject in general in the weeks to come. All right, I promised to run through at least a thumbnail sketch of the Balkans, and I think I should deliver that, but I do need to make it snappy owing to time constraints today, so let's just summarize it as follows. Croatia, definitely worth seeing. Slovenia, worth seeing. And Montenegro, also worth a look. The crown jewel of Croatia, of course, is Dubrovnik. A walled city built on a spectacular site and is one of those examples that are too few in the world of where man's interaction with the environment has actually improved the look of the environment. So in my opinion, you should put uh, Croatia and, and, and also let's throw in Slovenia and Montenegro with side trips on your bucket list. Now I had planned to cross from the Adriatic side of the Balkans over to the Black Sea and I'd hoped to make the transition by including Albania Kosovo, and Macedonia in the equation. Uh, that did not uh, come to pass, however. Except for Albania, uh, all these nations I've mentioned so far were part of Yugoslavia at one point, but Yugoslavia, alas, is no more. After Slovenia and Croatia broke away from what was once Yugoslavia on the same day a couple decades ago, the country got further pared down with the loss of what had been the Yugoslavian coast, that t today is known as Montenegro. Serbia is still trying to hold on to Kosovo, but a lot of other nations of the world have recognized it as an independent state. But the Serbs have not. <laughs> There's currently uh, some occupying troops that are there to prevent the Serbs from going back in and retaking it. And as for Serbia, which is pretty much what's left of what was once Yugoslavia, including the, Yugos the former Yugoslav capital of Belgrade, well, uh, I unexpectedly found myself visiting there and somewhat surprisingly found a great deal to like. They have a pedestrian mall in Belgrade that would be uh, the envy, I think, of almost any city in America. But the largest problem that yours truly encountered in the Balkans was worse in Serbia than any place else. And this turned out to be smokers. It was an issue, 
bit of an issue in Slovenia and, and Croatia and just about every place else. But in Serbia, wow, it seems the entire population is chain smoking. So if you like to say eat food and not share your fellow diners poisonous gases, well, you got a bit of a problem. I did have lunch with uh, a young man who was a young doctor who was part of the uh, Doctors Without Borders. It was a very interesting uh, discussion over a couple hours uh, period that um, I'll report on in future installments of this show. I do want to pass along two of his funnier opinions right now, which were that if you want to start a war or launder money, you need some Serbians. To which he added, but if you want to get a stolen car or do a drug deal, what you want are Albanians. I cannot say too much about Bosnia and Herzegovina, by the way, because my visit was just a matter of an afternoon spent in Mostar. But we will talk at length about that because, well, you may have recalled from the news of a couple decades back, the siege of Mostar. What a mess that was. What a disaster. To its credit, the city has largely been rebuilt, although apparently uh, 70% of it, at least 70% of the buildings were either damaged or outright destroyed. We'll try and sort out for you what we learned about the wars in that part of the world, but again, um, not today, not enough time. I meant to close out the trip in Romania, and I did, but unfortunately, by uh, tarrying too long in the previous countries, I only got a glimpse of Romania and cannot really say too much about it except that Bucharest struck me on my one and only pass as a place that was nuts. You're listening to KZFR 90.1 FM, Chico. Maybe it was because I was coming from Bulgaria, which is such a, such a, well, I don't know how to describe it, a, um, well, organized isn't perhaps the word I'm looking for, but, um, Maybe reasonably tidy little country. Anyway, that may be the hardest country I'm going to have to describe, but but I did like it. I would go back. Being uh, west of Istanbul and the ancient city of Constantinople, and before that the Greek Byzantium, it is, you know, one of the crossroads of the world. In what is today's Bulgaria, you can find the remains of uh, Greek cities, Roman cities superimposed on top of that. The profound influence of the Turks, who, of course, were there for centuries. And finally, uh, uh, the Slavs. They are the Slavic people to this day. But, but a mixture, a mixture of a lot of, different, uh, a lot of different folks that have been around there for, you know, thousands of years. And, you know, I don't think I'm doing a very good job of explaining all of this. But I'm going to take another whack at it in the future so it doesn't have to be perfect today. Suffice it to say, the Balkans is one of the world's crossroads. And a very interesting place from a cultural standpoint. But unfortunately, a place with a tragic history because just of the sheer number of invasions and wars that have been fought there, including the most recent war that was fought on European soil. And it is probably overall one of the worst wars fought since World War II, although, you know, it's hard to pick out a especially bad war. They're all bad. But I think the wars that raged across the Balkans were, were stupider than, than many others. Let's put it that way. And unfortunately, I think I'm out of gas at this point, so I need to take a break and um, leave further discussions about all of this for future installments of the show. I intend to have a reunion here of the other three people that were with me in the Balkans at one point or another and help round out the discussion. This will be fun. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Then I'm Douglas Everett, and I will be talking to you again next week.